This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good morning, I'm Noelle Lim. Many Malaysians struggle to make ends meet. Today on our new show, Spotlight, we explore what traps Malaysians in poverty and how can we change that by moving away from a race-based affirmative action policy to one of social protection. Joining us to discuss this is Emeritus Professor Datuk Dr. Norma Manso at the Social Wellbeing Research Centre at the Economics Faculty of University Malaya and Stephen Barrett, Social Policy Chief at UNICEF. So Malaysia has been measuring poverty based on income level. Critics say it misses the multidimensional factors uh, such as access to education, jobs and healthcare. How best should we measure poverty? Um, measuring poverty is, uh, is not as easy as uh, counting how many people are below certain um, level of income, although that, that would be the easiest way to start. Yeah? But Malaysia has developed beyond the um, low income, moved to become a, a upper middle income. And slowly, uh, in the past, we've been measuring the uh, according to the poverty line index, which is very low. We have to look into the other aspects of, of life. That would be a, uh, a going forward the way that Malaysia should address the issue of poverty uh, and inequality. Stephen, how should we measure poverty to get a more complete picture? Analysis has been done, I think, by Martin Revalian um, from Georgetown University. It suggests that the poverty line in Malaysia, if it was set at a level equivalent to other uh, countries of similar levels of development, could be maybe three times what it what it currently is in terms of the poverty line um, and the numbers of um, income-poor households would therefore be um, significantly higher. Um, but I think people also know that poverty or, or people are more concerned with other dimensions of deprivation beyond income poverty. Uh, and that's where the multidimensional poverty um, measurement is also particularly important. But there again, um, Malaysia's approach to measuring multidimensional poverty is also a little bit problematic. It, for, for a start, includes income measures um, as well as non-income measures, which I think muddies the water. But more importantly, it excludes a range of um, factors which many Malaysians are very concerned about. We, For example, ma- uh, nutrition um, and malnutrition status, but also more subjective and more um, uh, sophisticated measures such as people's um, uh, sense of well-being, anxiety, feelings of safety, um, feelings of uh, you know, inclusion or an exclusion. And those things are, are not captured at all um, uh, in the current MPI. So I think what Malaysia really needs to do, um, first of all, it can uh, overhaul the income poverty measure uh, and ensure that the measure of income poverty reflects what we might consider to be a minimum standard of living in an upper middle income country. Um, and then look at the... Uh, uh, the sort of multi-dimensional deprivation um, approach and think about a, an alternative methodology that brings in a broader range of measures. And there I'm specifically talking about the, the mix, the multi, multiple indicator cluster um, survey methodology that over 100 countries around the world, every other country in Southeast Asia implements. And I think, you know, as we move into the 12th Malaysia plan, uh, that also gives us an opportunity for uh, measuring well-being uh, much more effectively. So based on the figures that I have, uh, it is reported that poverty incidence is only about 0.4% mm-hmm. in 2018, down from 5.5% in 2000. So that looks quite impressive. But based on what you just told me, I mean, what do you think the poverty incidence rate should be? Martin Ravayon, who's also the uh, our visiting professor and um, Kuazis uh, chair at the Faculty of Economics, he talks about you times three 
So if at the currently is four four US dollars per day, uh, you times three it becomes twelve dollars uh, twelve US dollars per day. So that will be if you are just using income. There are lots of uh, indicators out there. Human Development Index is one indicator. World, world Happiness, yeah, you're talking about Happiness Index is also another indicator. So there are several indicators that we can include as part of the uh, measurement uh, uh, of poverty. So social protection, for instance, yeah, the World Bank had just uh, the last uh, mo- economic monitor or 2019 economic monitor do uh, did highlight that to look into um, promoting uh, private investment. But it's also looking at social protection because clearly there are people out there who could easily fall back into even if you use the, um, you know, the indicators that the official uh, uh, indicator that we're using. So according to Martin, around 22% of Malaysians um, could be considered poor if uh, such a measure was um, was used. And this isn't unreasonable. Um, other developed countries uh, in the OECD, for example, they also have poverty rates um, similar to that. So what are the implications on policy making if we take a more multidimensional approach? So now there are issues of quality of education, the quality of housing, quality of healthcare. Um, and education and employment is very much linked to to the multidimensional aspect. So um, now we are talking about are we are our people generating the the the, the uh, amount of income that you can live within a reasonable standard of living. So so these are the kind of issues or the kind of policies that the government have to to look at instead of uh, the old type of ways of addressing poverty. And looking at the poor, it's easy to attribute blame to mindset and culture, but that's often shaped by how our families brought us up and maybe the environment that we grew up in and also maybe the schools that we go to. So what are some misconceptions that society may have about the poor? If we look at the causes of poverty, so much of it is inherited uh, social and economic capital. You know, that um, how well you do is so often determined by how well your parents did and vice versa. So Low skills and associated wages, uh, low wages are um, a major driver of poverty. Um, and then if you look at shocks, ill health, uh, particularly mental health, and that's particularly important um, you know, amongst young people, you know, um, getting into, into the workplace and being productive. Loss of jobs, disability, divorce, early marriage, there's so many things that, that keep people uh, in, in difficult situations. If we look at Malaysia specifically and look at women, um, there's a limited, limited access to affordable childcare. So households, particularly um, single mothers, often find it really difficult to get into the workplace and, uh, and earn a, a decent uh, living. And then we look, if we look at um, social protection, if there's inadequate social protection that responds to all of those risks, then you're going to find a, a percentage of households on individuals who fall into poverty or are unable to get themselves out. So I, I think you're quite right. You know, we often blame individuals when actually it's a systemic issue. The poor, I think, can also be uh, one. You look at the uh, from the uh, employment perspective. Yeah, whether uh, um, we are generating the kind of employment that would be able to elevate uh, uh, the low income to a level where it's an acceptable uh, living standard. Yeah, but on the other hand, as individuals, as a member of society, we too have responsibility. Yeah? Individuals will also have to know how do you um, budget your your life according to your income. Uh, our nominal income, the nominal income uh, uh, in Malaysia, has not risen to to the level where. Uh, prices have increased. So that, that's another issue that I think perhaps another discussion on that, that that we need to have. 
Would you say that is one big factor that's trapping people in poverty? Malaysia has this structural problem. Yeah, our economy is is still very uh, uh, low income, low value add, uh, labor intensive. But uh, the different kind of industry or different kind of uh, uh, sector of the economy that doesn't pay very high. Add on to that, I think the situation is getting quite urgent. If we think about the twenty first century, um, the fourth industrial revolution, that, that these new technologies are going to put more pressure on low skilled workers' wages, ensuring that um, people skill up um, and are able to compete in that new economy is going to be absolutely critical to ensuring that a proportion of the population aren't left behind. And that's where social protection comes in. The government needs to be thinking about for the next five-year period. Tell us more about this social protection and your experience implementing this in other countries. And when we say social protection, I think we're talk- largely we're talking about a system of uh, insurance, uh, you know, contributory and non-contributory um, uh, income support programs. Um, so, of course, in Malaysia we have BRIM, we have the children's financial assistance programs. In other countries, these are enormous areas of public expenditure. Uh, if you look at OECD countries, these are the biggest areas of public expenditure, and OECD countries would look fundamentally different. To how they look now, if they did not exist, um, people often assume that as you, uh, countries get richer, then you 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 stop investing in things like uh, social benefit programs. On the contrary, countries that as they get richer invest more in those programs. And why is that so? Is it because of income inequality? Um, yes, and it's it's about leveling the playing field. It's about ensuring that everybody has um, equalizing opportunities for people. It's recognizing that, as we were saying earlier on, that so much of your life chances are dependent uh, on the circumstances in which you are born, and countries simply cannot allow for that to be a determinant of people's success. You, you risk wasting huge amounts of talent and productivity if you leave uh, success to the market, so to speak. The government and uh, the states have a role in levelling the playing field and ensuring everyone has an equal opportunity. You can plot a line uh, in terms of um, expenditure on children and family benefits um, and relative child poverty rates, for example. Um, so the Child poverty and poverty generally, to a certain extent, is a policy choice that governments can make. When you talk about social protection, what else can the government do beyond the Bantuan Sara Hidup allowance of 500 to 1,000 ringgit? Or what might a social protection policy look like in Malaysia? You can call like nine areas. I mean, ILO Convention 102 spell out that there are nine uh, um, areas here yeah, where... Um, People uh, should be protected. That is against uh, against sickness, against unemployment, old age, maternity, unemployment, injury, etc. So altogether, there are about nine areas. What uh, uh, what we have in the country when you talk about social protection is basically protecting either the very poor. Yeah, on one hand, on the left hand side, we have the very poor, or we have the the formal sector where you have the EPF, the likes of EPF, the public pension, etc. But the in between, the informal sector uh, uh, employees who are in the formal sector but contract workers, yeah. So these are the people without protection. What the government has introduced, which is the B- BSH now, is called, is basically is income support providing for Malaysians earning below certain level. They should receive some income. That, that's well and good. That has increased our uh, uh, support or increased the expenditure on social protection. But it's, it's got to be more systematic. It's got to be more holistic in that sense that who are who's out of the net currently, yeah? 
But on the other hand, there are other aspects of social protection, such as maternity. Yeah, maternity is so important, and children be- below the age of what you you talk about one thousand days of a child's life. Yeah, so it's about three years or four years and 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 below. This is very important because the IQ of of a child. Uh, uh, depends on this. Yeah, one is whether you inherit the right genes. Secondly, whether you are given the right food or nutrition. And thirdly, it's about stimulation. So the right food, and also when you have certain insurance for for uh, a woman who's carrying a child or with a child, that he or she is not going to go hungry. The children can get f- uh, uh, fed. For instance, if you are if you have certain grants for for children below certain age, that would encourage mothers to to be able to. Because she feels secure, she's happier. She can she can provide the stimulant too. So maybe the 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 first factor of the the you know what you inherit, the IQ that you inherit, maybe that you can't change. But two other dimensions or aspects of um, developing a, a child's cognition. That's one, and of course, area of uh, vulnerability is when you are old, the elderly. Not everyone receives a pension. Yeah, in this country, uh, only the civil servants or uh, former military because they. They also contribute, so they receive. Because the EPF is is not a pension. EPF is a, a compulsory contribution. You can take one lump sum. So it, they're not necessarily. And evidence out there shows that you know people can withdraw or can invest into something that will not bring them benefits to last them their, the rest of their life. So these are some of the issues that we have to look into or discuss uh, uh, when you talk about social protection in our country. Your thoughts on universal basic income. Should we do it in Malaysia? The benefits that arise, would like to, like to arise, wouldn't merit the cost. What I think Malaysia should do um, is put in place a life cycle-based social protection system uh, that focuses on uh, providing income security and a minimum and guaranteeing a minimum standard of living um, at critical points in the life cycle. Um, so, childhood, um, adolescence, pregnancy. Um, through the, the working working age population and then old age, through a mixture of contributory and non-contributory systems. I would advocate, and as often talked about, a, a universal basic income for children, uh, so universal child grants um, start you know, targeted according to, to age. I think you know there was a, a conference in Geneva just um, early this year where uh, a whole range of stakeholders came together and it was universally endorsed that particularly for the youngest age groups, so, um, that would be a very viable policy and many countries do that. Um, and I think that's, that's where the priority is. I, I think, you know, if you look at um, Malaysia's social protection system, and the OECD did some analysis back in 2016 or 17, and um, the evidence shows that the social protection system in Malaysia at present simply doesn't have much of an impact on relative poverty in the same way that it, it, you know it does in other countries of similar levels of development. So we have to we have to do something about that and break this cycle and build a more inclusive system. There really needs to be a strong social work response. Children and families at risk need to be identified and linked to services. And Malaysia's social workforce is relatively underdeveloped. Um, uh, and there needs to be a focus on professionalisation and strengthening of that of that system, um, strengthening case management systems, so that families get a holistic package of of support, uh, and so that they can sort of move themselves out of their their situation. Could you clarify why our social protection measures have little impact on tackling relative poverty, which is to ensure we have minimum level of income to have a comfortable living and not just for basic needs? If you look at relative poverty rates pre 
and post-tax um, and benefits, um, and you compare Malaysia to a range of other countries, it has very, very little impact. And, and the reason for that is that you know our social protection system is very, very light touch. If you look at the government's children's financial assistance program, only seventy thousand children um, in that in a country, you know, in the whole of Malaysia, uh, are eligible um, receiving that program and that support. So I think you know it's you know if we look at a life cycle system and we think about higher levels of coverage of specific social groups, children, people with disabilities, older people, and ensuring we get that um, adequate benefits um, to a broader group of, uh, of uh, people, not just rel- um, focusing on a small number of perceived extreme poor uh, individuals and think about it much more broadly, more inclusively, then we will get the sorts of benefits that you see in other OECD countries. Have you taken into account the impact of affirmative action in favour of the Bumiputra community? Surely that must have had some positive impact. So certainly the policies that have been put in place have had a massive impact on absolute poverty. Malaysia is one of the most successful countries (coughs) in the world in terms of addressing absolute poverty. But what we have, don't see uh, now is social policies having an impact on relative poverty. And certainly, you know, massive progress has been made on, in addressing racial inequalities as well. And that's been a key driver for um, reducing the, sort of the national, the aggregate p- um, uh, p- uh, picture on, on, on poverty. But it's, it's just that you know, as Malaysia is now a more advanced society, more can be done um, to uh, ensure that there's shared prosperity in the society. How can affirmative action address relative poverty or should there be no affirmative action? Your thoughts on that? When we look at social protection, we we stay away from identifying groups as in the different ethnic groups, different uh, th- that that kind of uh, grouping. Yeah, we do talk about categories. We do talk about who should we protect. So um, let's identify who could easily fall into poverty. Who, um, if someone is sick. If he or she is earning an income of certain level, yeah. If there is no insurance to make sure that when he's sick, then um, his income um, does not go down beyond the level that he needs. Those are the groups that we need to look at, and the the various stages in in human lives that one is considered vulnerable. The the life cycle approach to social protection is uh, is something that that is progressive, and that's uh, adopted by countries worldwide, and I think that's the way we should go, rather than looking at specific ethnic groups. And, and all that affirmative action for, for poor people and what we know from around the world is that's highly problematic so the first thing that happens of course is you you miss your target more often than not many countries that try to implement programs to raise the incomes only of the poor they 50 percent of the time they they miss and, and that creates all sorts of governance issues and challenges um in, in, a, in a country also at the household level that creates poverty traps you know, so you, you create an incentive. Um, you're encouraging people to progress and, and um, move themselves forward. But at the same time, you're saying, well, if you do, then we will take away the support that you've been receiving. And for, particularly for households living on the breadline and particularly for women, uh, that can be a major disincentive and a major major um, impediment to taking on more work. It's also very stigmatizing. Again, if you want to empower people, we talked about culture. We talked about the individual responsibilities. But if you're telling people that we're giving you support because you are poor that's a very negative thing to say to somebody and it always it counteracts any sort of positive um you know effort um, efforts to encourage a more entrepreneurial behavior 
But then also, you know, if you're targeting poor households, the, the benefits will necessarily have to be very, very low. Um, because if you pay higher benefits to people who are poor, they will automatically become wealthier than people who were immediately above them and were, no, and were not eligible for the program. And that causes also social problems. So if you want to provide um, benefits to poorer, lower income households that actually help them in a meaningful way, then you actually need to have a more inclusive program that's relevant to everybody and doesn't avoid and doesn't have these sort of arbitrary cutoffs, um, which create all these perverse incentives um, and, and and impacts on, on people. So a more inclusive life cycle focused program, which does not necessarily mean that every program needs to be uh, universal. You know, different programs it makes. You know, I, I would argue, for example, a child benefit. There is a strong argument for making that universal. Of course, housing support would not be a, a universal um, program skills training you can have uh, you can have targeted uh, programs for uh, skills training programs for lower income households um i think it's a it's a you need a mixture of the, these different types of policies certain programs should be universal or near universal with you know or aiming to achieve broad coverage wide coverage and other programs would be m- more targeted but what malaysia ne- i would argue needs to do is shift its focus at the moment we have programs which purely target a, a very very small number of people and actually what we need to do is a more a broader more inclusive and um, a more substantial uh, investment in families so a more holistic and inclusive policy to tackle poverty thank you for your time we just spoke with emeritus professor dr norma manso at the social well-being research center of university malaya and stephen barrett chief of social policy at unicef i'm noel lim on spotlight bfm 89.9 thank you for listening to this podcast To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.